If you have a Bible, could you please uh, turn with me to uh, Philippians chapter 4? If you have a smartphone, that'll work. We're just reading out of the English Standard Version. And uh, we are in part 13 of 14 messages in the book of Philippians, which means it's the final countdown. And... uh, We're just going to do two verses uh, this morning, Uh, 8 and 9 of Philippians chapter 4, a very uh, well-known passage of Scripture. In the lead-up to this, uh, we've called the series The Pursuit of Joy. The Apostle Paul has been focusing in the last few passages on how to live a life of growing Christ-likeness and how to resist worldliness. And when you hear that word worldliness, a lot of different things uh, come to mind. But we saw that worldliness is usually demonstrated in two main ways. Worldliness is firstly in doing things that God commands against. God has given us commands summarized in the Ten Commandments. Uh, Violating those is worldly. And secondly, though, in, in a much more subtle way, we see that worldliness often comes by loving things so much that they take the place of God in our lives, that they become objects of worship in our heart. And therefore, worldliness is quite a subtle thing in many cases because it can be good things that when we elevate them to the status of ultimate things, we become worldly. So Paul preaches against worldliness and he encourages this church in Philippi to be reminded of the fact that their citizenship is in heaven. And despite whatever troubles they face in this life, and they are facing many troubles, they will be made fully Christ-like and receive a resurrected body at the end of the age, at the coming of Christ. So that long-term perspective that God is making them like Jesus and he's dealing with their sin is an encouragement to them. And it is supposed to bring hope and joy in the present life. The fact that things will work out for them in the end is to be an encouragement right now. We call these implications or applications of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this wonderful message of his salvation. So last week... We saw in verses 2 to 7 of Philippians chapter 4, Paul starts with his concluding remarks. As everyone well knows, preachers have a lot of things to say and then they check on a few more things at the end. Paul is no different in that. And he gives four commands uh, in that little passage. Four commands. Reconcile, rejoice, be reasonable. And then he says, don't worry pray in verse 7. And he follows that up with a promise for people that are obedient to these commands that the peace of God will be with you. Verse 7, that wonderful verse, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Today in verses 8 and 9, Paul's following much the same pattern. He gives two commands, which we'll look at, and a promise attached, an even better promise attached at the end. Let us hear God's words and seek to be doers of God's word, as James says. 
verse 8 of Philippians chapter 4. This is the word of God. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word to us this morning. In 2016, how many of us have a social media account of some sort? Facebook? Instagram, Twitter, something of that nature. Who's got one of those? Who? Sorry, who doesn't? So let's let's. Who doesn't? Rock on. Um, all of us consume an amazing amount of information each day, and that goes even for people that do not have social media accounts. We have news in various formats. We have TV. We have blogs. We have advertising. We have uh, websites. Everything is jostling for our attention. Some people listen to talkback radio. I don't see the point, but that if that's your thing, so be it. We, on average, it seems like We take in about 285 unique pieces of information every day. 285 stories each day. Divide that by the 16 hours each day you're awake. That is a lot. The average person reads approximately 54,000 words each day. Some estimates go as high as 100,000. 54,000 words is the length of an average 250-page novel. And that's even for people who, you know, don't like reading much. It's funny how people who don't like reading much still have spend a lot of managed to spend a lot of time on Facebook. If you're offended, that might be the spirit convicting you. Um, But all of us read an insane amount of information each day, and we hear an insane amount of information, and every status update you read, every tweet or text message you get from a friend, all these bits of information that you receive each day are competing for resources in your brain. And they're also competing for resources in your brain with important things like what you need to do right now, decision-making in the future, the fact that you need to get your kid ready for bed, the fact that you have to have some food soon. I mean, who forgets to eat all the time? I know I do. You know, there's lots of information that is constantly fighting for our resources in our brains. And our minds, which have been given to us by God, are remarkable things, and we're usually able to handle this amount of information. But sometimes it causes overload. And often, I think more often than not, thoughts about Christ, thoughts about God, uh, Scripture, prayer, All those things that God has given to us for our good are competing with this information overload we receive each day. And it makes sense in this world 
where there is more information than ever before competing for our attention, that some people would be looking for ways to order their minds and order their lives. And one such approach is meditation. I have a number of uh, non-Christian friends encouraging other their friends and, and even me to, to take up meditation. Jono, you need to sit down. You don't have to cross your legs because I can't do that. And you just need to empty your mind. You need to empty your mind. And in that, you will find peace from the rat race. And at times, it seems like that might be a reasonable approach, right? Common sense, is it not? You're filling your mind with so much information, why don't we just empty it in response? That's what meditation is. Emptying the mind, which is oversaturated with information. I would say that that's not, according to this text that we have here, that's not the Christian or biblical approach at all. But Paul, in our text, is making a command to meditate. But it is the Christian form of meditation. Please remove any negative connotations you have around that word meditation. To meditate is simply to think on something. And we have this command here, the first command, and right at the end of verse 8, Paul says, think about these things. Some of your translations will say, think on these things. That is a call to meditation, but a meditation of different form. If your understanding of meditation is emptying your mind when you meditate or pray, that neglects the fact that God has spoken to us through his word, through his son, Jesus Christ. And he speaks to us through his son, by his Holy Spirit. That form of meditation where we empty our minds of everything in it and we just wait. And some people try to Christianize it and say, just empty your mind and let God fill it. Let God speak to you. It's missing out on the fact that God has already spoken. He has given us truth. He has given us a son to think about. Christian meditation It's designed to help you listen to what God has already said. It's designed to help you think on what God has already done and who he demonstrates who he already is in Scripture. Meditation is the call to to use our minds to think upon true things about God, his ways, the things he has done, his attributes, his promises that come to us through Jesus Christ. Why are we called to think upon these things? The first reason I would say, Paul, that we can pull out of verse 8 is that we meditate to cultivate good desires, godly desires. Let's look at what we are called to to think on in verse 8. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, and then he says, if there's any excellence, Anything worthy of praise, think upon such things. Let's spend a little bit of time on those. True. That's the first one. The Christian is called to think upon truth. Every time we sin, I would argue, we are in some ways believing a lie. 
It started right off in the Garden of Eden. Eat this fruit, it will be good for you. It's believing a lie. That's what leads to sin. Christian is called to think upon truth. Jesus says in uh, John 14 verse 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. God is a God of truth. Whatever is honorable, is this leading me towards God and towards obedience, or is it leading me away? Whatever is just, just, justice. We ask ourselves, is what I'm thinking about causing me to try and seek revenge on someone, or is it causing me to try and treat them like the image bearers that they are? Justice is loving someone and treating them as God would have you treat them. Is it just? Is it causing, is my mindset and my attitude, is it causing peace or is it causing division? Whatever is pure, is my heart pure in what I'm doing? Am I seeking to be obedient to God's word? God is a God of truth and purity. Or is it instead causing me to stir up trouble? Is it lovely? Whatever is lovely. Is it beautiful and winsome? When we evaluate the things that we think about, it's quite easy when we give this as a checklist. Is this lovely? Is this beautiful? Is it whatever is commendable, he says? Am I acting in a way that is commendable? Is it reprehensible? And then he gives a broad summary. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think upon such things. Paul starts with truth, moves to things that are just, and then he opens them right wide. Whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, the Christian is to fold her mind thinking upon things that are good. And the purpose of that is to cultivate good, godly desires. We'll go a little bit deeper on this soon, but I want to make a little side point on the issue of worldliness. We mentioned a couple messages ago on what worldliness actually is. And we said that the, the approach of Christians often is to say, we don't want that kind of music. How do we make it good? Let, oh, let's Christianize it. If we think of art, we think of, an I, I don't know, I'm not into abstract art, maybe you are, but a nice landscape, I really like that. A, a tree, a house, it, it's good. I like that. I love looking at that kind of art. But some people say, is it truly honoring to God unless it's a Christian painting? We saw that in the, the Middle Ages where people, if you didn't draw a painting of Mary or Jesus on a cross or one of the disciples at the Last Supper, it was not honoring to God. But I think if we recognize that worldliness is first and foremost something that happens in our heart rather than something that happens out there, we would no longer feel this real tension to Christianize everything. You can only listen to Christian music. You can only read, read Christian books. You can only look at Christian art. You can only watch movies about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we wind up in that Christian ghetto that I talk all about. 
But I think if you look at what Paul said about worldliness in chapter 3, and then we look at what Paul said here about whatever is lovely, whatever is excellent, whatever is worthy of praise, we can say then that as Christians, we don't need to Christianize everything. And the only need that we really have is to ask ourselves, is this true? Is it beautiful? Is it commendable? Because if it is, it's a gift from God. It is good, and we can enjoy it. We have no other standard necessary to enjoy a novel apart from the fact is, is it written well? Is it written well? I am not going to freak out at you if your kids are reading Harry Potter. I'm just not, because it's a well-written book. How you're going to mess it up is if your heart gets set on it, if you get addicted to it, if it causes you to move away from the faith in some way. One of the dangers of Christianizing everything is that we tend to, and so much of Christian music, I don't listen to Christian music stations at all, it's just a personal preference, is because sadly so much of Christianizing music just causes bad art. It's just like, I'd rather listen to a good classical piece. I'd rather listen to a good band of talented rock musicians than listen to something that is Christian, but it's deficient. It's not good art. And sadly, so much of what what we've come to in, in, in Christian movies and Christian music is that the artistic standards are really, really low, but the theological and doctrinal and Christian component of it is not that strong either. It's just, uh, it's just weak everywhere. We can do better than that. I remember getting into a debate where a number of people were telling off a Christian songwriter because his songs were not Christian enough. And he says, I'm not trying to write Christian music. I'm trying to write good music. And they said, that's not good enough. You need to use your talent for God. And he says, well, listen, I'm not capable of writing good Christian music that is deep, that is worthy of use for worship. So I'm going to just try and write music that sounds good, that's beautiful. I wasn't sure which side to take in that debate, but I know which side I would have taken now. I would have said, good on you, brother. Use your talent to just make good music and read books so maybe one day you can write good music to be sung in church. Let's move on. That's a rabbit trail. I try not to do those all the time. There's a danger as we look at verse 8 when we see this list of things to, to think upon. And there's a danger, and some people take this text and they say, ah, let's just try and think about good, nice stuff. And the purpose of it is that we would be just good citizens. Nice, fine, upstanding people that don't listen to death metal. Paul has not jumped down from the heights of our citizenship is in heaven to just be a good person, just be nice, think upon nice things. That's not what he's done. 
And the reason I say this is because when Paul is saying whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, the ultimate, the ultimate example of what to think upon is found in Jesus Christ. Jesus is true. Jesus is honorable. Jesus is just. Jesus is pure. Jesus is beautiful. He is a beautiful Savior, and sinners flock to him. Jesus is commendable. Jesus is excellent, and Jesus is ultimately worthy of praise. Do we see these words? Do we see who they're ultimately pointing to? The Savior, Jesus Christ. That is why in our time of gathered worship, it needs to center primarily around the man, Jesus Christ. He is the perfect example of who we should think upon. The Apostle Paul lives this out tremendously well in his, in his own life. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, he thinks upon the majesty of God. He thinks upon the sinfulness of sin in his own upbringing. And he thinks upon the beauty of Jesus Christ who has saved him. I want to read a little bit from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank him who has given me strength, Jesus Christ our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. What is he thinking about now? He's thinking about his past. He says, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. What's Paul doing there? He's thinking, he's speaking what he's been meditating on, that he has received mercy, though he did not deserve it. And he has a Savior. He is thinking on truth. He's putting Philippians 4, 8, and 9 into practice in that passage. So the first reason that we meditate is to cultivate good and true desires. The second one is... We need to meditate, we need to think upon truth, because we always think before we act. And we are always to think before we act. This is tied to verse 9's command, practice these things. Imagine you're engrossed in something, you're really focused on maybe writing a, a paper, or you're engrossed in work, and you get a phone call, or someone comes into the room and wants to talk about something completely different. If you've been really focused on what you're doing, your natural response is going to be, oh, let me drop what I'm doing, let me think about what I'm supposed to say, and let me answer this call. We have to think before we act. Otherwise, we put our foot in our mouth, right? And there's a principle there. You think before you act. We meditate and we think on truth before we carry it out. One commentator put it this way. 
meditation comes first and afterwards comes action. And that's why in this church, the words doctrine, the words theology, they're not dirty words. They can't be. The word ideology shouldn't immediately fill us with dread. The question is, is the doctrine true? Is it just? Is it honorable? Is it biblical? Does it point to Christ? Our goal is to live up to our doctrine, to live up to our theology, to practice it, to live it out. And that is an ongoing, ongoing struggle. The gospel brings with it implications of the gospel, things that we are supposed to do to live for Jesus Christ, and that is always harder. We are to try and seek to live up to our theology. You do what you believe, and that is important. If we believe that the Bible is God speaking to us, we will read it. If we believe that God hears the prayers of his children, we will pray and cast our anxieties on him. makes total sense. If we believe something, truly, we will do it. And that leads us to the second commandment in verse 9. Practice these things. Paul says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. This is the pattern of discipleship. The pattern of following after Christ. We we meditate, we receive instruction, we see it lived out amongst us and other people, and then we apply it ourselves, practice these things. Our goal for we live these things out is firstly to, to meditate upon truth, and then we need to listen to instruction. No one becomes a Christian and immediately has all the knowledge, all the truth that they need about God, about Christ. No one has that all right in your mind. You're not like a robot in that uh, new X-Men movie that I watched on Friday night with my wife who just bang, plugs something in and has all knowledge. We're not like that. Okay, We have a Bible to help us out. We have the preaching of the Word. We have uh, midweek groups to discuss Scripture and truth. We have books to read. We have sharing of wisdom with one another through relationships. We need to meditate on truth. We need to listen to instruction and constantly think upon it. We need to see that example lived out in other Christians. If you've been a Christian for a while and you've had uh, other believers maybe a little bit further along the road than you to help you, to show you as an example, it's a tremendous blessing. Paul says, look at me. He says to these people, look at me. Follow my example as I follow Jesus Christ. So we meditate upon truth. We listen to instruction. We see the example in other people. And then we live it out. Practice these things. The end result of becoming a Christian, and a lot of people don't get this, the end result of becoming a Christian 
is that we have been saved unto do good works, to live it out, to practice it, to be on the field, so to speak, loving God and love neighbor. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he talks about, he starts off by saying that we were in sin, we were doing our own thing, we were rebellious against God, and then he says, verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It talks about the salvation. It talks about coming to know Jesus Christ, being forgiven of our sins. And then he says, verse 10, For we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We hear the gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ and Lord and Savior. That is for a very real reason, that we might be saved, that we might come to faith. But it doesn't stop there. God then calls us to not only hear the word and be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word in James 1, We've been saved unto good works that we might be Christ's ambassadors in this world seeking to love God and love neighbor as ourself. Therefore, we need to hear what God has for us to do. We need to think about it. We need to see it lived out amongst us. There's nothing wrong with grabbing an older Christian in this church and say, hey, can you help me out? Can you show me how you do this? Can you show me how you pray? If you're a young guy, find a married man and say to him, can you show me how you love your wife and lead your family? If you're like me, newly married, freaking out over how to lead a family devotion, it's a lot harder than preaching for me. you got to ask someone, how do I do this? Show me how. Let me see your example that I might practice it also. God then, Paul then gives a promise. We think upon true things and then we practice them. And there's a promise. In verse 9, and the God of peace will be with you. Last week, verse 7, the peace of God, we see this? The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will be with you. This week, the God of peace will be with you. Not just God's peace, but God himself. Why is Paul saying this? He's saying, you will know the true peace of God. The God of peace will draw near to you as you practice these things, as you think upon true things, as you behold Jesus Christ each day, each week, as you pray to your Father, as you seek to live out His commands, the God of peace will draw near to you. You will know His presence and you will know His peace because He has drawn near to you as you obey His word. What we don't want to do as Christians, is say we've been saved by faith and grace in Jesus Christ, not based on what we've done. That's the gospel. 
and then say, it doesn't matter now how you live. We have been given commands not to condemn us, but to show us how to live. And in this passage, Paul is saying, you think upon true things. You think ultimately upon Christ and what he has done for you. You seek to live out these commands of God. You seek to practice them. And he says, and God will be with you. We are saved absolutely by faith. We are saved by grace. But we have also been saved to something, and that is a new way of living in accordance with God's word. What we need to be is a people who hear the word and do it and live obediently. And we have this promise attached to it that God will be with us as we seek to be obedient to him. That is a life of joy. And there is a that wonderful truth undergirding all of what we're saying here, and that is the gospel, that we have not obeyed. We have not always thought upon truth. We have not always think, thought upon things that are just and commandable and excellent. We have not. And we have not always practiced the word that we have heard. Let us, in this moment, as we come to the Lord's Supper, recognize, however, that we have a Savior who has died for us, who has come that we might be forgiven, who has come that there might be no condemnation resting upon our shoulders. Your failures have been wiped out. Try again. I failed again, God. Your failures have been wiped out. Keep going. Try again. That is the wonderful piece of the gospel.